Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash politics and religion. Your support through Patreon will really help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with Robert Draper. Robert Draper is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic Magazine. He's the author of several books, actually a a very prolific writer. Uh, One of his books is uh, the New York Times bestseller, Dead Certain, the Presidency of George W. Bush. And his latest book, which we'll discuss at length today, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Robert Draper, thanks so much for coming in. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on, Corey. Just another week in America, just uh, normal, you know, just let's go get some soda pop and uh, everybody's getting along, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 right, exactly. No, it's um, it's been another unpredictable week in American politics. It's certainly, uh, it certainly keeps things interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't start. You did uh, this lengthy deep dive uh, in the New York, magazine, uh, New York Times Magazine uh, about the Arizona Republican Party. So I was curious if you had some uh, takeaways uh, from where it stands right now uh, for the 2022 mid- midterm. Sure, I've been following um, those races um, particularly closely, Corey. And and uh, though at this moment it's too close to call on a couple of levels or for a couple of um, seats, we already know that uh, um, that Mark Kelly um, has been reelected and has beaten back Blake Masters. What that means, among other things, is that the whole Trump slate did not prevail as one, but it remains to be seen what's going to happen at the very top of um, the ballot uh, with um, the race between uh, Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs. Carrie Lake has made it abundantly clear that if she does not win, uh, she's going to say she she did not win or she did not lose fair and square. That it was uh, uh, she's already intimating that uh, dark forces are at work uh, trying that 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 she's 100 percent certain that she um, uh, has won and um, that the only question is um, putting the ballot up to prove that. And and that is, in fact, um, very much not decided and uh, but very much in keeping with um, Lake, who was one of the most prominent 2020 election deniers uh, and who has essentially been Trump on steroids when it comes to making those kinds of um, conspiratorial claims. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if if there's anything that we can take away from the results that we do know from the midterms, it's that the independents, uh, folks that aren't extremists, uh, normies is a new word that, I, that I've mm-hmm. heard. 
um, have have won the day at least so far. I'm wondering if you think that some of the fervor within the base of the Republican Party may start to fall away, or if you think that there's uh, th- this sort of extremist, uh, disconnected from reality uh, nature of it will will persist. Yeah, to answer um, your question directly, no, I do not think that the MAGA movement will begin to dissipate. I do not think that whether or not um, the Republicans have a six-seat majority in the House or a 20-seat majority in the House really is going to be dispositive in their thinking. I think that, that it's true, as you were indicating, that given an opportunity for um, the general electorate to express their opinion of Donald Trump and of Trumpism, um, they will uh, take that opportunity to express their deep dislike of Trump and of Trumpism. Um, that's what we saw in statewide races. That's what we saw in you know, the overall mood, I think, of the general electorate. However, I'm, I'm drawing a sharp distinction between um, that general electorate, uh, which includes, of course, not uh, includes Democrats as well as independents, um, uh, dis- distinguishing between that and Republicans, because it still appears to be the case that um, if you're going to win a Republican primary, uh, you certainly don't defy Donald Trump. Um, if you do, you get the Liz Cheney treatment, which is to say um, bounced from uh, a seat that you've held for several terms, as she did in Wyoming. Uh, so, no, I do not think that that, um, that Trump is, is beginning to lose sway within the uh, within the hardcore base of the Republican Party. And, and you know, part of the proof of that is that even though we're starting to hear, Corey, some uh, more establishment Republicans say, you know, it's time that, that Trump went away, uh, we're not actually hearing, not hearing any of his um, potential opponents saying that uh, because uh, they don't want to get clubbed over the head um, uh, and, again, receive the kind of uh, uh, into the wood chipper treatment that, that Liz Cheney and others have who have um, been very forceful in saying that the party needs to move away from Trump. Yeah, no, you cover a lot of this in the book, and and I definitely want to get to that. Uh, but I, I did want to take a step back for a second. I, I have, to, have to ask you about the home that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand, it's a kind of home that's becoming inc- increasingly rare. Uh, yeah. That is, <laughs> your, your parents were on different sides of the political aisle. Uh, sure. So t- tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. My uh, <clears throat> my father was a lifelong Republican. Um, my mother, a lifelong Democrat. Uh, neither of them would fit the description of being extreme. Um, they would cheerfully cancel out each other's votes every election cycle. But my father, though, he embodied what I grew up coming to think of as basic traits of, of um, conservatism and of the Republican Party, uh, would never have thought to demonize um, uh, the the opposition in the manner that we now see done so casually by Republicans. He certainly wouldn't have stayed um, happily married to my mother, his wife of 64 years, if that were the case. And and I grew up in a, in a basically a conservative environment in a conservative suburban area of West Houston. In my day, uh, back when dinosaurs walked the earth, the, uh, <laughs> to be a Democrat in Texas was almost certainly to be a conservative Democrat, which really just meant um, Democrat by tradition. Uh, and, um, and there was hardly any any 
really any any room at all between what a Republican was and what a what a Democrat was. Uh, and uh, and but you know my father on his literal deathbed in um, November of 2019 um, said to me that he he believed that the Republican Party had taken leave of its senses under Donald Trump and that he hoped that uh, um, Joe Biden would become a Democratic nominee because he believed that Biden and Biden alone uh, could defeat Trump, after which uh, the party would then hopefully come to its senses. And as I mentioned in the book, uh, he got one out of two right. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so your family actually has a, a rich tradition in, in politics. Were you old enough to understand the significance of your grandfather's role in the, um, how, how would you call it, the, the Watergate? Yes, my grandfather was um, Leon Jaworski, the Right. He was the Watergate special prosecutor uh, hired after the um, Friday night massacre. Uh, and um, and yes, I was old enough. Uh, I was, I think, 15 years old or so and and um, uh, maybe 16. And during I remember the spring of 1974 leading up to the U.S. Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Nixon, that Nixon ultimately lost and forced him then to give up um, the White House tapes, which in turn triggered his resignation. Uh, during that spring of 1974, I, I went to visit my grandfather and grandmother. They were living in a suite in the Jefferson, Jefferson Hotel. And so it was my spring break and I stayed there for a week. And, and until Watergate, um, I only read you know the sports pages. I didn't care anything about um, civics, much less American politics, but I definitely got the bug uh, from it. It's a bit of an incentive structure built in when when uh, um, a close member of your family is on the front page every other day to read what's on the front page. And and in turn, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but to me, writer meant novelist. And and but then now reading Woodward and Bernstein and the Washington Post and Seymour Hersh and the New York Times, um, uh, I was a, like a lot of young people sort of bitten by the investigative journalism bug. And it, and it definitely seeded in me the notion of um, doing political journalism someday. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because it looks like you did a special honors program at UT Austin, uh, right? Wrote for the school newspaper there. So uh, that's so that that ultimately is what spurred your interest in writing in the first or maybe got you focused on a particular subject writing wise. Yeah, I was. The truth is, um, I'd known since I was in, I think, in second grade that I wanted to be a writer. But but again, that to me meant fiction, and I did write a lot of fiction uh, throughout um, high school and college, uh, but was never ever, ever never really able to find um, the career ladder uh, on fiction. And uh, ultimately, uh, really, I think you know the the proximate influence on me in terms of uh, becoming what I what I am now is that there was a young magazine when I was a teenager in Texas called Texas Monthly. It had started up in 1972, and it really featured some of the best of, of uh, narrative nonfiction. And so to know that you could actually use kind of fictional techniques, storytelling techniques in uh, nonfiction writing, that nonfiction writing encompassed much more than just who, what, when, where, why of newspaper writing, uh, that, that sort of you know, whetted my appetite for that notion, and and ultimately, um, uh, through a succession of events in the late '80s and early '90s, I I, I fell onto you know uh, um, uh, into that slipstream. But it wasn't really political journalism for a long time. I wrote about crime and punishment. I wrote profiles of all sorts, and I would say probably one out of every 
I don't know, um, seven or eight stories that I wrote had something to do with politics. But when I left Texas Monthly as a staff writer in 1997 and went over to GQ magazine, um, that coincided with the ascendancy of George W. Bush, who was uh, the governor of my state, uh, Texas at the time. And it was around that time that he was contemplating um, running for president. And I began to spend a lot of time with Bush, which ultimately led to the book I did on Bush. And that kind of pulled me in the direction of um, political journalism that I've never been able to pull myself away from. You know, since you brought up uh, the, the book on Bush, you made a comparison later in, in the, the current book uh, between uh, the assumption that Bush is stupid and the assumption that Marjorie Taylor Greene is stupid. And you say mm -hmm. that's that's not a fair assessment, but you describe uh, you, you get more specific in, in your study of 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 that particular trait that we uh, some folks uh, wrongingly um, uh, translate as as uh, a lack of intelligence or something. Could you describe that comparison and specifically what we're seeing there in those individuals? Yeah, I did experience a sense of deja vu, as you're referencing, Corey, when I was um, starting to do the succession of interviews I did with the Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene for Weapons of Mass Delusion. Um, uh, it, it very much was an echo of what I experienced spending time with Bush and then going back to um, to my friends and listening to all of them say, oh, Bush is such an idiot. Um, you know, was he able to even follow a noun with a verb? And and uh, uh, and what I had found with Bush was that it's true that he mangled the English language often and <laughs> and um, was pretty self-deprecating about that too. But that Bush actually had a very uh, rigorous intellectual uh, intellect on matters that interested him. Um, that's an important clause because on those things that didn't. Uh, hold his attention. He could be very incurious. But uh, that when you were in dialogue with Bush, uh, you had to know your stuff, or he would he would tend to find the weak thread in your argument and and unravel it. Uh, Green is not that way, um, but it's also the case that um, uh, she says so many outrageous and um, factually unsupportable things that um, uh, that it leads people to believe that she's not intelligent at all. In fact, she is, and she's. Um, um, I'm not suggesting that uh, she's, you know, mental level intelligent, but uh, but certainly, you know, above average. Uh, knows what she's doing, um, has some very, very extreme beliefs, but does believe them, also recognizes um, strategically a way to hyperbolize those for a fact uh, for effect. Uh, and uh, and I think that what Green and Bush have in common, besides them both being re uh, Republican politicians, is the tendency that their adversaries have to underestimate them, or as Bush would say, misunderestimate. And and uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, Green actually, as as I divulge in both my book and in the New York Times Magazine adaptation of the book, um, has uh, um, actually been been quite strategic and quite serious about um, uh, about gaining, maintaining and growing influence within the Republican Party. And I, I think that people just assumed that she was a glutton for attention. Uh, and, and of course, the corollary to that would, would be their assumption that if you stopped paying attention to her, she would just go away. But that hasn't been the case at all. She is a dynamo fundraiser um, within the Republican Party, one of the top fundraisers, in fact. Uh, she is very, very close to Trump. He has talked to her about being um, her running uh, his running mate in 2024. He may have talked to half a dozen other people about that too, but she's a freshman congresswoman and 
that she's actually having this series of discussions with Trump about this is kind of notable. Um, and and I'd say most of all, because the mega base of the party really um, uh, adores her, views her as the fighter that they have longed for ever since Trump left center stage. Uh, that, that, that means she has a lot of power uh, as a as an exponent of that base. And uh, Republicans who are in the know recognize that power. One of those is the guy who's likely to be Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy is not going to award Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, plum committee assignments, such as on oversight and on Judiciary Committee, just out of the goodness of his heart. He's doing it because he recognizes that um, that um, she has the Trump base behind her, and he has already made the calculation that absent the support of the base, uh, the Republicans can't prevail and uh, McCarthy can't be speaker. So uh, so all of which is to say that that um, that hiding in plain sight has been a real growth of influence, um, a, a remarkable amount by any freshman, much less someone who possesses the kind of extreme views that Marjorie Greene does. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because Kevin McCarthy, the book is, is as you were describing your, your penchant for uh, writing stories, the book is, seems to me like a collection of stories uh, with a, a, a um, connective tissue between the stories, as well as a series of character studies. And what you looked at, what we learned of Kevin McCarthy uh, as one of those characters that he's, nothing if not pragmatic in his approach uh, to gaining leadership. Uh, I wonder, there's, there, there must be this tension between the influence he knows uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has within his caucus and what he must be seeing as the attrition, you know, between 2016, 2018, 2020, and now 2022, there's this attrition in the you know, the, the general election, frankly, that you have to do one thing um, in, in order to, you know, win your primary in, in the Republican uh, Party, but then a whole other thing that, frankly, by the time you get to that point in the general just isn't working. So I it's I don't know if you can answer this, but I, I wonder how if McCarthy is is looking at that and how he might adjust going forward, because at the end of the day, they still need to win and they're not. No, that's that's right, Corey. And I, um, McCarthy's theory of the case is that the um, he doesn't have to love Trump, and Trump doesn't have to love him, but he can't incur the animosity of Trump because Trump is such a formidable enemy, and um, and that goes the same with um, the base, obviously, that gives Trump his power. Yeah, McCarthy's not an idiot. He can count. He knows that historically this should have been. Uh, if not a wave election, then at least one in which the party out of power, his party, would gain at least a couple dozen seats, at least. Um, uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, it's, it looks like it'll be more like eight. And uh, and uh, that's even with the help of extreme partisan gerrymandering in a variety of states that have handed um, seats to the Republicans on a silver platter, uh, that they've had to fight tooth and nail beyond that just to get their heads above water does indicate uh, an attrition that McCarthy um, is no doubt aware of. At the same time, um, uh, McCarthy doesn't really have much of a theory of the case as to how 
how Trumpism dies out. Um, he hopes that it takes a more moderate form, uh, perhaps in the form of a Ron DeSantis, which is, I'd hesitate to say moderate, but more like temperamentally moderate, let's say, um, so that they're not eating their own and so they're not becoming such a turnoff to the general electorate. But I don't, uh, you know, and my book certainly um, deals with this, the, you know, the 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 other half of the title is I mean the weapons are are Marjorie Taylor Greene and the like right. but the mass delusion the mass delusion of the tens of millions of Americans uh, uh, Republicans most you know uh, nearly entirely who believe that the 2020 election was stolen who believe that January the sixth was uh, an FBI setup or Antifa staged who believe that COVID vaccines don't work or or will kill you and um, and I do not know how that gets flushed out of the system, even if Trump were to walk mm-hmm. off stage, if suddenly they all come to their senses. And part of the reason for that, Corey, is that there's a, you know, there's this right-wing media ecosystem um, that has basically built a cottage industry out of these conspiracy theories. Um, they're they're extreme. They they involve characterizing uh, the opposition party in the most demonizing of ways. And that gets attention. It gets online donations. It gets viewers. Um, and so uh, McCarthy would have, have every right to be concerned about the narrowness of his majority. But I do not see, um, I don't see an end game. I don't see a way out of this for the party, apart from not just one cycle of losses, but a succession of losses, uh, or um, maybe the opposite of a catastrophic uh, series of defeats, a catastrophic victory, and that the MAGA wing utterly take over and prove themselves to be so repellent to the general electorate, even more so than Trump had been in his one term, that ultimately uh, the Republican Party turns hard against its base just for means of survival. Yeah. You know, I was surprised that you deal with um, this burgeoning industry uh, the uh, and and I want to ask you about this specifically later of what is it called the reawaken reawaken American tour right, uh, yeah. reawaken America tour right. um, these these series of of election audits where no bid contracts were were awarded um, I was surprised though that you didn't deal more you you do t- touch upon the um, uh, conservative media ecosystem I was expecting there to be more in the book about that you do touch upon it at one point uh, you say. It was Rush Limbaugh's final tour de force of zigzagging logic. Time to stop being docile. Only the left believes in violence. Thank God America's founding patriots believed in violence. The January 6th patriots were set up by the violent left. He'd said it all before, and so had uh, Brian Scott Haven, and so would others whose minds had been shaped by Rush Limbaugh's conspiratorial depiction of America. In In this manner, he would live on. I was curious if you've considered doing like an entire book just on how conservative media has contributed to, you know, the mass delusion as, as you Sure, say. sure. Well, well, so for one thing, um, I mean, the short answer is yes, I have. And, and, uh, and I'm, uh, there, there exist already a number of books about Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and the growth of conservative talk radio and the sh- uh, how that has shaped the minds of conservatives. Um, I, I'll also say that, that this book isn't intended to be a history book. It's very pointedly about when the Republican Party lost its mind, not how the Republican Party lost its mind. When, thus, yeah. Yeah. And so it really, the, and the when, you know, this, the book really covers 
um, about an 18 month period that begins on January the 6th and and uh, and then the months that follow that. But I did um, to 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 address what you're saying, Corey, I did in the course of my reporting come to really it, it made a great impression on me to see these so-called news agencies that didn't even exist 10 years ago, uh, like a, um, Real America's Voice, Right Side Broadcasting, uh, One American News, um, in addition to the ones we've known about for a while, like Gateway Pundit, Breitbart, uh, uh, Infowars, et cetera, that these have now become the chief information sources for for um, for the right-wing electorate, by which I, I don't mean tens of thousands of people i'm talking about millions and millions of people and 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 to go to a trump rally um as i have many many times over the years and nowadays not to see on the media riser cnn and abc and the like but instead um to see again real america's voice and right side broadcasting and for them to be um treated kind of like rock stars by the attendees there and then to see their their behavior towards Trump and towards other right wing politicians, uh, it, they're they are nothing if not propaganda outlets. I mean, they don't even pretend to be um, skeptical uh, in a healthy way to uh, to be challenging. Uh, they're entirely credulous and essentially stenographers for the right. And and that is. Um, that's something that's a new development that that um, uh, on top of which the willful uh, pushing out of the promulgation of um, the absolute craziest uh, conspiracy theories. You know, um, there were a million of them relating to the 2020 election. And then there have been a bunch relating to audits and all that. And and, uh, uh, and again, it's because there's a very, very receptive audience for that. I do think that, that you know, the there was always, you know, Rush Limbaugh inculcated in um, particularly conservative men the idea that Democrats were incorrigibly uh, bad people, that the liberals were bad um, uh, and and maybe even evil. But uh, so so in a lot of ways, Limbaugh created a permission structure for Trump uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others of their stripe. To begin very casually referring to Democrats as unpatriotic, as communists, as uh, swamp creatures, as as human scum, enemies of the American people. Uh, Limbaugh didn't use language quite that extreme, but his language was very adjacent to that. And uh, and so uh, once Trump and and uh, and others after him began employing that kind of language, it bore a sufficiently familiar ring um, that it easily took hold. Yeah, to your point, uh, you you had some incredible insights into the Republican conference's deliberations regarding Liz Cheney's leadership role. Uh, and one common thing, it was jarring. It was summed, summed up in something uh, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania said. This is about the aid and comfort that you offered to our enemy, is what he said to Liz Cheney. Um, the fact that Democrats are seen not as the loyal opposition, but the enemy. So I was curious, how pervasive uh, is this way of seeing folks on the other side of the aisle? Yeah, I, yeah, um, probably worthwhile, uh, Corey, to draw a distinction between how they're seen and how they're described. Right. So that's so there are a lot of establishment Republicans um, who don't see Democrats as the enemy, uh, but they certainly don't stop their 
um, right-wing colleagues from saying that, and they may even from time to time indulge in calling Democrats the enemy too. It's it, um, uh, it it's not <laughs> it's to say the least. It's not exactly a, a helpful development in um, in American life that our elected officials see those people with whom they disagree um, as being the enemy. But but yeah, this is you know for someone like me who again grew up in a conservative environment who has been covering conservative politics for over two decades, um, this is a new phenomenon. And um, and as I mentioned um, in uh, a story that's kind of adjacent to this book that you referenced before about Arizona, it's also a new phenomenon to hear so many conservatives describe democracy as a kind of dirty word. And uh, and so that, um, and, and in a way, I think the two things are related uh, because democracy really connotes a sort of mob rule. It connotes that um, uh, to uh, to these conservatives that um, a 50 percent plus one majority can result in tyranny against them, can result in the forfeiture of everything they've come to understand and, and love about America. And and uh, and so they really do see this, uh, do see the stakes as existential and do see the side as, um, you know, as demonic uh, and uh, and I depict what's happening in America today as something like right out of the book of Revelations. Yeah, again, it's it's um, the insights that you gleaned uh, from having been there and and having uh, spoken, just basically doing great reporting. So, for example, early in the book, you observe the cognitive dissonance of January sixth was therefore so jarring that only a circular logic could ease the confusion. The enemy was nowhere in sight. It was in fact not there at all. Uh, but because violence was there, so was Antifa by definition. There's just so much to discuss about that. So you, you were at the Capitol. As a right. journalist, you've been in other war zones around the world. Had anything prepared you for what you saw and experienced that day? No, because it was America. And it's and uh, it just simply seemed cognitively dissonant, this, this particular spectacle. Yeah, I you know, just happened to be in the Capitol that day. It was the day I was beginning work on this book and, and intended to show up for this ritual certification of the vote. Uh, I wasn't able to get space in the press gallery because of social distancing concerns. And so I was wandering around the Capitol and then happened to walk towards the West Terrace in time to see these policemen running up the stairs. Uh, and as I got closer to see where they were running from, uh, the doors to the West Terrace flew open and I saw these policemen come in beaten and maced and, and uh, uh, staggering around looking for water. I and a, a Capitol staffer helped set up a water station for the policemen so that they could flush their eyes out with water. And it, you know, to, to see Every time the doors would open, um, hundreds of people hanging from uh, the scaffolds that were intended to be um, the beginning of the risers for uh, the inauguration to take place two weeks later. And this kind of um, this visceral roar uh, and and policemen um, duking it out with um, protesters, uh, it really looked you know, like some scene out of a Francis Ford Coppola movie or something. And, 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 and yeah, like something I might've encountered 
in the Democratic Republic of Congo or Libya or uh, Somalia or other places that I've been to for National Geographic. I just, um, it was scarifying. And once I got out of the Capitol and stood outside and watched um, people on the inside, on the Supreme, uh, on the east side, on the Supreme Court side of the Capitol, push their way in. Uh, and just to see, it was like seeing democracy give way as as they pushed their way through the doors and seeing policemen scatter about to no tactical end at all. It, it was clear to me that anything could happen, that violence was inevitable. And I you know, now look back on that as a kind of miracle that there weren't more um, deaths that day. But certainly um, had they seen the mob, seen um, Nancy Pelosi or Mike Pence, uh, there's no question in my mind, but there would have been at minimum severe physical injury. They were an unstoppable force and certainly had no governor, no, no ability to put the brakes on themselves. It was an out of control situation. Well, you do describe uh, certain uh, folks that you overheard, like a man with his two yeah. sons outside the Capitol. Uh, you've also done subsequent interviews with Oath Keepers and uh, leaders of, of regional parts of, of uh, these different groups. I was curious uh, if you could help us understand the motivations, the beliefs, the paradigms. And we've already talked a lot about this, uh, but what was driving people to participate in such violence? Sure. I mean, it's that um, that's one thing we do know, you know, that uh, um, uh, the vast majority of the people, as best as we can tell, who participated in the violence, who were part of the, the riot, um, hadn't intended uh, to do that, but got caught up in a moment. Um, there certainly were people, Oath Keepers, um, 3% uh, militia types, Proud Boys, who went there precisely with, with violence on their mind. And and uh, uh, and in the charging documents of a lot of these people who've been indicted, that's abundantly clear. But what brought them there, you know, Corey, was that um, they believed uh, couldn't be convinced otherwise that the 2020 election was stolen, that their champion, their great president, Donald Trump, had rightfully won, but that the deep state um, was locked in this ferocious battle in an effort to to deprive him of victory, which was outrageous to these to his supporters on its face. But it also was this apt metaphor, Corey, for the greater sense of forfeiture that they had felt as America bit by bit was being taken away from mm. them. And so and so, you know, that's this was the straw that broke the camel's back for them. And so many of them, again, they would say it in their social media posts. You could see it in the charging documents later, would say the president has fought for us. Now it's time for us to fight for him. And they and uh, and basically most of them arrive not necessarily with violence on their minds, but with the expectation that, you know, I'll do whatever my president wants. I'm here to show my support and and to be, um, you know, to be there for him. And, and you referenced that uh, while I was on the east side outside of the Capitol and I heard this uh, middle-aged man with what I guess were his two teenage sons and he in this quavering voice said to them, you know, Sons, freedom isn't free. Sometimes you have to fight for it like our forefathers did. And I think now is that time. And they disappeared in the crowd towards the Capitol. I have no idea whatever happened to them, but they were people who looked like they'd be your neighbors or my neighbors. And, and But they really saw this as an existential call to arms. And uh, they, they bought this lie that 
um, that Trump began, but that was repeated over and over by their more proximate elected officials, in all likelihood by their information sources, by their friends, by their neighbors, probably by their preachers. Uh, and uh, and it was all they heard. It was all they knew. They couldn't be disabused of it. And look, you know, if 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 you and I had what we believed was ironclad evidence that um, that the person we voted for for president uh, uh, who should be president, that um, the election was stolen from him. We'd be outraged, too. I'd like to think that we wouldn't march on the Capitol and try to um, disrupt the peaceful transition of power. But but I can understand if you are inextricably stuck in that ecosystem, that um, that that would be your reaction to the claim that um, that Trump lost. You know, just candidly, kind of going off script here, I, I have friends. I, I do, I'm a small business person, so I do business here in my community. And I interact with folks that if we never brought up politics, I wouldn't, you know, think anything of it. But I've been in these conversations where because I do this program, oftentimes religion and politics come up. And uh, there's one person in particular I have in mind, really nice uh, lady that, um, it occurred to me, I told her, listen, uh, my my program in, invites a wide array of listeners and, and guests. And I said, but, you know, the one lane that um, maybe wouldn't like my show are people who are uh, stop the steal folks. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I said that, she kind of stopped me. She said, well, don't you think it was stolen? <laughs> and mm -hmm. it just caught me so off guard that mm -hmm. I'm just trying to really, I'm just trying to understand it, that she said, well, it, it's it. You, so you really believe that 81 million people voted? I don't know anyone who voted for Joe Biden. That's that's what I hear. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that to me. Um, we were having dinner a um, month and a half ago or so, and uh, and I had more than once called her delusional for um, for saying for believing and saying over and over and very loudly that the election had been stolen. And she said, "Come on, Robert, do you really think Joe Biden got 81 million votes?" And I said, "Yeah." Yeah, I do. Is that is that, that the best you got? I mean, you, that it just defies your imagination that you don't know any Biden voters. Well, you know, welcome to if you're a Democrat to 2016. I mean, Democrats thought the same thing. You're, you've got to be kidding me. Trump got that many votes. I, we thought it was going to be a landslide for Hillary Clinton. And and yet um, and yet he pulls off he pulls off this victory. I heard that over and over from people. They didn't you know, they they were stunned by it when when they when it became clear that Russia had interfered in the election in hopes of swinging the election to Trump. There were a lot of Democrats who harbored the belief that 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 is, in fact, what occurred, that that votes had been moved in Trump's column because of that. But they did not react um, uh, obviously the way, uh, the people did on January the 6th and they did not, they, they came to accept over time that, um, that they had misunderstood the electoral trends. That is not something that you're seeing in the Republican party. And, and, uh, and again, I think it, it, it does speak to this larger belief that, um, that, that in particular non-college educated white working class Americans, believe that America as they know it has been taken from them and through no fault of their own. And that um, that this is um, not just a deprivation, this is a theft. And uh, and and they believe that there are people who um, uh, not only don't have uh, uh, the best interests of the non-college educated white working class at heart, but in fact are actively wanting to turn them into a minority, to strip them of their voice, 
And so that that kind of hostility made them far more receptive to this outrageous notion that a vast conspiracy managed to steal all of these votes for a sleepy Joe Biden, that that you would more readily accept that conspiracy than just the possibility that you voted for the wrong guy, you know, for the losing guy. It's, it's hard to imagine, but but um, a little easier to imagine once you understand, you know, um, the ecosystem they inhabit. Uh, one big factor in this in this uh, larger equation that we haven't discussed, and I'm kind of glad that we haven't discussed yet. We're we're about forty plus minutes into this mm -hmm. conversation. Is Donald Trump? Now you you've spent time with Donald Trump, and sure. and you you have this way of describing him. I don't know if it's an adjective that I'd heard, but when I'd read it, it you, you use it uh, at least three or four times throughout the book. It seems really spot on. You I, the the word is feral. Yeah. Uh, a, a feral intelligence. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, that that, um, that Trump, though he loves to brag about, you know, the, the great schools that he went to and what a high IQ he has and how he's a stable genius, his his um, to the extent that he has a genius, it's more of the animal kind that <laughs> he can. And, and, I, and I'm saying that without judgment, it's just a recognition of what I believe is true, that, that um, he's he's very good at sensing weakness. He's very good at, at knowing um, when he doesn't yet have the upper hand and needs to court someone. Trump can be quite charming uh, to people uh, when he needs to be, and uh, and quite you know vicious when he feels wounded. And uh, and so I I really do find the word feral to be you know very very apt one in describing him. And and uh, you know what what does separate. His kind, you know, what what really puts the cap on his intelligence, however, whatever modifier you want to put ahead of the word intelligence, is his tendency to be his own worst enemy, and uh, which is something that uh, most animals um, that stick around for a while aren't. And so, it's a remarkable phenomenon that Trump has succeeded um, uh, to the extent that he has, while being his own worst enemy. But it, but he he sizes up. Um, people and situations very well. He's he's a great bluffer. Uh, he uh, he gets people to believe his BS, and um, and he he he's really um, a confidence man in the classic sense of the phrase. Uh, in that he he wins people's confidence. He wins them over by having this powerful belief in himself, while also impress uponing, impressing upon you his all too humanness, such that you think he's he's basically an honest guy, even in spite of himself, and could never pull the wool over your eyes when that's exactly what he's doing. Mm. It's interesting. I, I, if we had a Shakespeare of today, it'd be interesting to for see, sure. you yeah. know. Um, so zo zooming out for a second, at one point you say that to describe Donald Trump as having hijacked the Republican Party as wrong. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, because, I mean, um, that is something that's been said over and over about the Republican Party, but it presupposes a bunch of erroneous notions. I mean, one of them is that it presupposes that uh, the vessel in question was perfectly innocent, that it, it bore no responsibility for its own plight. It presupposes that it was an otherwise healthy vessel capable of flying. And and neither of those is true. It's It uh, was in many ways um, laying a trap for itself uh, that uh, that Trump then helped exploit, but you know a great example of that was was 
Trump talking about the Iraq war and and uh, Republicans had been saying over and over that that uh, well George W. Bush you know kept us safe he may not have gotten it all right but he got the surge right and Trump said are you kidding that's um uh, that was the dumbest foreign policy mistake of you know uh, in American history and a lot of Republican elders thought you know you can't say that and and have a political future and Trump proved them wrong but it's also true that that you know the the Republican Party had been very lackadaisical in its attempt to reach out to um, to other voters, to, to young people, to people of color. It had expressed an interest in doing that, but its follow through was very anemic um, after 2012. And Trump in 2016 showed another way. He said, why the hell would you want to do that? You know, don't don't try to get people who dislike you to like you. In fact, let them hate you and, and hate them in return. But get the people who like you to love you. Get them, get them to support you blindly, and uh, and that's the formula. And if all else fails, then say that the people uh, who dislike you cheated in the election. So you know that's that's uh, uh, so so uh, the Republican Party didn't have any other model to go by um, that was a winning formula. And Trump showed them a winning formula, and they immediately grabbed it. It's it, uh, but but this is not a hostage situation. They were very much. Um, sort of setting themselves up for the Trump phenomenon to occur. It is amazing to me <clears throat> that in four short years, that the the cycle from 2012 to 2016, uh, 2012, I just remember as being, okay, we'll, we'll try this one out for a month. You know, it was Herman Cain, Michelle Bachman, Sarah Palin, and one after the other, you know, Herman Cain was, was uh, arguably he was sunk by uh, shucky ducky, you know, right. um, and and then uh, finally settled on on Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney you could say you know cost him a couple points for saying binders full of women, yeah. uh, you know something so um, benign. And then you get to I, I knew that we were in trouble when uh, I think it was August of 2015. Donald Trump um, his infamous uh, critique of of uh, John McCain. Well, I, I like mm -hmm. I like my war heroes who weren't captured kind of a thing. Right. And then he was still leading the pack. Yeah, you know. Um, so something really had changed in those three to four short years. So have you observed anything along those lines about was it just that, OK, so the nice guy didn't work. We have to get somebody, uh, as as Trump used in his 2020 campaign, somebody who's fighting for us. W what were some of the other things that changed in that time? Sure. I think that, that um, the one thing that um, that Romney, McCain and others had overlooked or maybe they saw it but just didn't wish to play to it was this deep cultural um, uh, resentment amongst the Republican base. And that's why I was saying that, that um, they didn't have to, they, you know, ultimately um, the Republican base came to love Trump. But at first what they loved about Trump was that they shared the same enemies. That Trump also railed against the cultural elite, mm. against the deep state, against the enemy of the American people, fake news media. And, and then, you know, later still, uh, the rhinos and uh, and and so they they liked that this was a give them hell kind of guy and they came to believe um, rather startlingly since um, Trump was not exactly a habitué of of, uh, of flyover country they came to believe he was he was their champion and this guy who was a Manhattan billionaire developer um, who only knew of South Carolina what he'd seen of the golf properties there that that he was their guy they they really came to see that and 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 part of it as well was that um they were so receptive to 
uh, the transactions that Trump would make them uh, make to them that they would overlook some of his foibles. The, the key, you know, case in point being um, the evangelicals, and uh, um, they of course knew that Trump, you know, wasn't some great holy man. But they convinced themselves because they were getting conservative judges, they were getting, um, you know, the uh, pro-life stances that Trump was a latter-day King David, this imperfect vessel. Uh, but who still, you know, was uh, in in a sense their their holy warrior, and uh, so Trump played these transactions very very well. It's it's interesting because I'm you know you look at his his um, uh, you know people like me without even realizing it bought to some degree subconsciously the premise of The Apprentice, you know, which was that Trump was the the world's great deal maker. And now looking back on it, his deals weren't that great, but he made a couple just brilliant ones in politics. And the chief ones were with uh, the evangelicals and with the Federalist Society. Um, and he was he was terrible working with the legislative branch and and uh, terrible with foreign policy and and dealing with our allies, uh, but he made a couple of he made a couple of great bets, a couple of great transactions that that really helped galvanize his base. Yeah. Now, something that was really helpful for me in reading the book was that you put a human face on the the kinds of um, individuals, like these are human beings. Uh, so one person I was hoping you could tell us about is uh, Jim Arroyo of Prescott, Arizona. Yeah, Jim Arroyo is an Oath Keeper. He's the head of the largest Arizona chapter of the Oath Keepers. Um, really good guy. I like him. He's, he's um, He actually, uh, uh, um, I mean, very, very extreme and very conspiratorial in his beliefs, but also very erudite and, and measured in a lot of ways. I mean, his his view of um, the Oath Keepers was that um, the oath they were keeping was to defend the Republic and that they, far from being a kind of um, anti-law enforcement group, that they were really set up to supplement law enforcement. Now, you, you dig down a little bit deeper and just, you know, just what are the moments where supplementing law enforcement is necessary in his view, not against, say, Unite the Right or something, you know, or white supremacist marches, but instead um, Black Lives Matter protesters, um, uh, the occasional Antifa outbreak and other other uh, things from the left. But Arroyo is a very, he's a, um, uh, you know, very well-spoken, dis disapproved of, of what took place in January the 6th. He felt it was outside the purview of, of the Oath Keepers, felt as well that on a practical level, um, it would achieve exactly the opposite effect. It would, uh, it would cause people to view paramilitary groups like the Oath Keepers as, as being seditious. Indeed, some of them have been charged by uh, the Department of Justice with seditious conspiracy. But yeah, you know, I've, I, this is why I'm in the business, Corey. I mean, I'm really interested in in um, why people are the way they are and and uh, why they believe what they believe on on all sides of the political spectrum. And uh, and I often have, when I spend time with people on the right, I have my friends who are liberals will say, you know, how could you like sit in a room with Karl Rove and not want to strangle him? Or or how how in the world could you, you know, be anywhere near Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and not want to take a Karen Silkwood shower afterwards or something? <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, the, the thing is, is that, I mean, I, I, I really view it as, as, as central to the journalistic mission to be able to explain 
the world um, to people who may not be acquainted, acquainted with certain aspects of the world. And, and uh, it's become increasingly difficult um, to cover the right because they're so suspicious of the mainstream media and get coddled so much by their propaganda outlets, as I was saying before. Um, but I also think it's more important than ever um, that, you know, if there's any means of finding commonalities, any means of finding humanity, you know, and, and letting them see humanity. I think, by the way, that it was a real freak out for Marjorie Taylor Greene to encounter me, the first member of the mainstream press she'd ever done an interview with, and that I wasn't exuding, you know, sulfur fumes. <laughs> and, you know, that I had a Southern accent like her and that actually, you know, could crack a joke and also, you know, listened and didn't like, you know, didn't start, you know, shaming her or something, but was honestly interested in, you know, her viewpoints, I think was a really new experience for her. And I, and, it, you know, reminded me that this is, this is what we have to be doing. It's, it's uh, the, the notion that we shut out one third of America um, uh, is is nuts, and yeah. uh, and in any event, it's counter to to the mission that I signed on for. Yeah, that's perhaps one of the one of your superpowers as a journalist is um, I, I see consistently uh, throughout not just uh, the, the the latest book, but um, other pieces I've read, and and now I'm I'm, I'm a fan, so I'm going to start Thank getting you. the other books too. Um, but your your willingness to give folks the benefit of the doubt and to be inquisitive on their terms uh, w without a particular agenda. That said, you did come across folks uh, who, to be fair, weren't acting in good faith. So for example, uh, some folks behind the Justice for J6 rally. I love how you end uh, one of those chapters. You can't make this up, guys, but <laughs> <laughs> so much of it is literally made yeah. up. Yeah, you're ref you're referring to the fact that that uh, there was this group, and and look, they're they're grifters. There's just no other way to put it. I mean, they're um, they may believe some of this stuff, but what they really believe is monetizing it. And so this was a group that was set up ostensibly to support um, uh, the people who've been indicted uh, by the federal government for their role in the January 6th insurrection and who are currently being held at the D.C. jail. The ones who are being held at the D.C. jail pending trial. It isn't because they couldn't afford bail. Um, it's, in fact, because either they pose an escape threat or they're seen as a danger to their community. And if they're seen, and if they're seen as a danger to their community, typically it's because they actually posted on social media before they were busted that they intended to go out and kill Democrats, uh, you know, uh, uh, to kill Nancy Pelosi. And you can't, you know, you can't say that kind of stuff without weathering consequences. And and but so that one of the organizers for this. Uh, read a letter from somebody who was supposed to be there saying that um, this person who was the wife of one of the people who was arrested uh, at the Capitol on January the 6th said that she had been stopped by the FBI at the airport, that her laptop had been taken from her, and that she was placed under house arrest in her hotel. And the woman reading this on stage said, you, you can't make this up, guys. Well, in fact, <laughs> literally every word of that was made up. In fact, what I came to learn later, actually, after I, the book went to press, was that the woman had had one of her kids had had a nervous breakdown in the airport. So they turned around and went back. It had literally nothing whatsoever to do with that. But I found I'd phone for the book. I, I phoned the attorney um, for, you know, the guy who was awaiting trial, whose wife this was, who supposedly had been detained by the FBI. 
And I said, you know, tell me more. I want to hear about this. He says, this is the first I've heard of it, which is his very gentle way of saying it's totally made up. And and uh, and yet there were, you know, in real time, um, I didn't know that it wasn't made up. And I was surrounded by, you know, a couple hundred people nodding gravely or shaking their head and in, in disgust. And um, and this is the kind of casual um, disinformation that's yeah. thrown out to you know to demonize the other side and and uh, and to make you think that they are incorrigibly evil evil capable capable of the most despicable acts yeah yeah uh, so you brought up uh some of the folks the inmates in the so-called patriot wing of the dc jail mm -hmm. Uh, there was something surprising that I found um, the the folks being detained due to their involvement in the insurrection. What they had to say about Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a um, one of the defense attorneys had told me this, and and um, it's not uh, you know what what's happened is that it has not escaped their notice that while they're languishing away in jail, um, Donald Trump, who had some of the richest friends in America, um, hasn't spent a penny. To help them with their legal defense and you know hasn't he spent a lot raising money for his own legal defenses but but not for theirs and uh also i um i omitted this from the text because they weren't aware of it at the time and neither was i they they were of the view as well that uh this guy said he was going to march to the Capitol with us, and he did not. Now we have since come to learn that he really did want to march, and and uh, so I I excised that sentiment because they were they were acting on incomplete um, information. But but yeah, they um, I mean, this is again one of these tragedies that that uh, um, an awful lot of the people indicted for the insurrection. Uh, have come to recognize that they got taken for a ride. That these were these were lies that they were fed, and they they're ashamed of it. And their lives have been turned upside down as a result. But there are some um, who have become sort of cause celebs and who are, are now part of this little cottage industry of um, justice for J6 and citizens against politically persecuted and, and other groups that have sprung up. And so they're now kind of pawns in this game of uh, these people are political prisoners and um, uh, they're being held for exercising their First Amendment rights. And this is the kind of thing that you would never see a Democrat arrested for. Marjorie Taylor Greene and I have talked about this, too, because she she came to believe that that all those people there prove that there's a two tiered system of justice, um, one for people who support Trump and one for not, which is just obnoxiously ridiculous. I mean, it, that anyone who's been to a maximum security prison and I have in my capacity as a journalist, been to dozens of them, um, has seen that there is a two-tier system of justice. It's for the you know economically privileged and for those who who um, who are not, and um, and that these people are not being detained because they voted for Donald Trump. They're being detained um, because they tried to physically harm people, or in many cases, did physically harm uh, police. So there, um, th that depiction is worse than erroneous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure someone like Brian Stevenson would, would welcome uh, somebody being awakened to uh, what's wrong with our criminal justice system, but not not yeah. quite like that. <laughs> no, no, that's right.
so I, I have a couple more questions for sure. you. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for the time that we spent, and I, I can't recommend the book highly enough. It's such a great, like I said, um, it's a great account of of this history, how the Republican Party lost its mind. Deep dive into January 6th and and various events uh, subsequent to that. I was curious if if you read um, John Rausch's recent book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And the reason I ask is it's one of the best books I've read over the last couple of years in terms of diagnosing uh, so many of the ills that plague our culture, but also asserting some uh, prescriptions as to what we can do to get out of this mess. Um, so more than anything, I was curious if you had some insights in what now? How, how can we yeah. move forward as a as a culture? Right. I, I, yeah. So I, I have not read Roush's book. You're about the sixth or seventh person who's recommended it to me. So now I'm, I'm going to make a point of, of doing it. The, one of the occupational hazards of, of um, writing is that you tend to read only those things that are part of the subject that you're utterly absorbed in. And, and in a meta sense, Roush's book is that, but it's but not in the very proximate sense that usually is what commands my attention. You know, as, as to what um as to how we get out of this, I um I wish I had a Pollyannish, you know, or an upbeat reply, but when we are considering the delusion on Moss, the tens of millions of people who believe all of these lies and are habituated to believing them because they again have this greater sense of of loss and forfeiture i don't know that it's a that's a quick proposition at all to flush that kind of um that kind of delusional thinking out of out of the system of the body politic i do not know exactly what it takes when i mean it's, it's you know some of this is endemic to um the democratization as people have said of of the internet and that people now can get all sorts of information but the usually the result is they get the information they want that fortifies their own viewpoints and uh and can sort of dine off of that and um you know putin is certainly smiling that that his dirty work is being done for him here in the u.s that that you know putin's goal of um of upending um democratic principles and, and eroding uh, norms in the world's greatest democracy the all that's being realized for him and I and I um ordinarily you know the the solution um in divided times has been you know some kind of national crisis that unites us in the way that say 9/11 did um but um but we saw that we saw two crises um in the course of about a year's time one of them was the coronavirus. And it did anything but unite us. And the other was January the 6th, which also um, further polarized us. So I do not, I I, I, I don't know um, how you wake people up to what reality is unless you perhaps address their willingness, um, address the, the kind of um, grievances that they foster that cause them to gravitate towards an easy explanation, whether whether it's QAnon or the election being stolen, and I, um, you know, I, that's what I'm I'm not prescribing as many people as you know some pundits and 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 um, thought leaders did after 2016 that we need to be paying more attention to the white working class and and uh, lifting up their boat predominantly. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that that um, that we turn the bulk of our attention to that segment of society at the expense of other segments of society, at least as diver- deserving of attention. But I do think that that um, that 
that this grievance born out of grief, uh, you know, out of a real loss, it's something we have to find a way um, to take stock of and address and not simply to say, well, you know, the manufacturing base is gone. You're all going to have to learn green jobs uh, and you're just, you know, going to have to learn to love um, a more globalized environment. I'm, I'm not the most articulate thinker when it comes to how we address that, but I have been um, put off by the view that some on the left have, uh, that the opinions of um, the right-wing, non-college-educated, white working-class community are so repellent that um, they don't deserve to be listened to. Um, they're Americans, too, and we we have to find a way to bring them in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last question, and then we have some business, and that mm -hmm. is, uh, do you have any questions for me? I guess the question I have for you, Corey, is, is that, you know, as you've done this program, I mean, how has it shaped your own opinions of where we are, you know, um, where where America is now? You know, the, the more intake you've gotten, um, not obviously just from me, but from other people that you've interviewed, others you've encountered, how has it shaped, you know, your view of where you think America is? I, I think, wow, that's a, a broad question. Um, I think that I have a better understanding of human beings mm -hmm. um, that a, a lot of different um, elected officials, uh, journalists, really great writers, um, faith leaders. It's helpful for me to understand my neighbor a little bit better. Um, someone who maybe I hit a uh, a difference in our thinking or in what we're watching and reading. And then I'll just cut off the conversation. Um, but because of books like yours or, you know, uh, someone like John Rausch's book um, or Pete, the work that Pete Weiner does, people like that, mm -hmm. or even faith leaders like uh, Dr. Reverend Jackie Lewis, I'm able to understand what is concerning people, what is motivating people and what they how they're participating in you know in our in civics and the it's helpful for me because i do want to have those conversations i do want to be in those relationships not because i i not not because i do have some pollyannish view that i can convince them of reality but you know some folks are unpersuadable mm -hmm. um but i do think that maybe um as i am persuaded of the earnestness of uh, folks who might defer for me, like the lady I described from a business group that I, I belong to, mm -hmm. um, that I can at least submit to the sincerity of her beliefs mm -hmm. and then perhaps not convince her to <laughs> back away from everything that she believes, but perhaps mm -hmm. I can have like one degree of influence, you know, so that that's how it's been helpful for me. But at the end of the day, really what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to understand it. There are some mm -hmm. things uh, that sociologically just don't make sense to me. There are some things, uh, a direction that we seem to be going as a country um, that just, it doesn't make sense that folks are thinking, yeah, this is the way to go, <laughs> you <Right>. know? So <clears throat> no, every person right. I talk to so accomplished and, and you know, impressive in, in, in um, the bulk of their work. Um, it's been helpful for me, bottom line, to to make a little bit of sense of it. So, sure. 
Yeah. 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 No, it's, and look, I think that this, I mean, like the, the woman you were referring to before who believed the election was stolen. I mean, you, you walked away from that unable to convince her otherwise, but it may make some small subliminal difference for her that she met, that she encountered someone who's an intelligent, humane, you know, individual who disagrees with her on this, but you know, that that you're on the other end of that argument, you know, has to be uh, reconciled with the fact that you seem like a perfectly decent guy, right? You know, so that's, <laughs> and so that's, I mean, but really, I mean, it, when, when that cognitive dissonance can hopefully help pierce these, you know, notions that the other side that disagrees with me need to go to hell or they need all to be murdered or something that, yeah. that, uh, um, that, that you can see that, well, you know, no, actually there is, you know, um, another viewpoint and expressed by someone who in every other way is not my enemy. Yeah. No, at the end of the day, I think we have to do more humanizing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So, all right. So tell us how we can find you and, and more information about your book and all the great work that you're doing. Sure. I mean, I'm, um, uh, as I'm actually winding down what has been a very rewarding, um, 15 years with National Geographic and um, and beginning January, I'm taking um, uh, the New York Times has created a new job for me, a, a kind of hybrid job in which I'll spend half of my time um, uh, writing magazine stories, uh, as I already do, and the other half writing lengthy profiles for uh for the front section of the times for the washington dc bureau uh i still you know i've as you mentioned i've, I've written books i love writing books so this one weapons of mass delusion uh when the republican party lost its mind um i think is a really um it's a snapshot in time but it's a it's a historically significant snapshot and i think that this is the one where we'll look back and say that that uh uh, the Republican Party came to a fork in the road after January the 6th, and um, it went the wrong way. And um, it has got to do something about that. And this is the moment when that happened. Uh, I'll continue to be covering um, uh, uh, conservatives as well as other things, but I but I certainly will continue to do this. And, and um, apart from that, uh, we'll do my best to enjoy life in Washington, D.C. with my wife, who I married um, six weeks ago. And, and uh, Mazel Tov. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, and yeah, so, you know, it's um, uh, I've been I've you know, it's been a very, very historically significant and never boring time um, to be a Washington based political journalist. So um, at times it seems impossible to make sense of it all, but um, it's not monotonous. Yeah, I didn't even get to ask you about your relationship with Kirsten, but some of those yeah. dinner conversations must be a treat. <laughs> yeah, no, she's brilliant and and intellectually challenging, and uh, and I've had to get used to um, always being wrong. I mean, that's just, she, she wins every <laughs> argument. You know, that's just that's, the way it is. <laughs> that's great. Well, uh, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate your book and all the rest of your work. Uh, I started reading some of those Nat Geo uh, pieces, one of the more recent ones on historical sites throughout the throughout the world. So um, your, your work is great. Can't recommend it highly enough. We'll be sure to put links in the show notes and stuff like that. But uh, right. yeah, but thanks again for coming in. It was really great talking to you, Robert. No, really a pleasure. Thanks so much for all the great questions, Corey. I really, really, it's very gratifying for an author. 
You bet. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Thank you.